The other day I had lunch here on Broadway with our bishop. Now, in our faith tradition, we call the bishop the one who oversees the the regional churches, a district superintendent. And over lunch, our bishop asked me the question, as you look ahead to the next five to 10 years, what are the most important goals in your role? I think he was anticipating that I would talk about our reworked vision as we come out of the pandemic or something related to our strategic plan. I wasn't trying to be evasive, but I thought about this question before, so I had an answer. I said, the most important goal in, in my role is to grow more deeply rooted in my relationship with Jesus Christ so that I change. And if that happens, hopefully everything that really matters will fall into place. And then I talked about some of our more concrete goals over the next several years as a church. Now, if that question had been asked to me when I was a student or when I was working in the corporate world or when I did my brief stint in journalism or in my role as a husband or as a father, you know, what's your most important goal in those roles? my answer would not have been materially different. It would have been something along the lines of, I really want to grow in my relationship with God and to experience transformation. The Apostle Paul, in his own life, felt that his most important mission was to know Christ deeply and to experience the power of his resurrection. And in his role as a kind of bishop figure overseeing churches, it was his prayer and dream for these churches, these followers of Jesus, to go deep into Christ, to be rooted in him, and as a result, to be stable, but also to experience an ongoing transformation. Last Sunday, we began a new series in the book of Colossians. And today, we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, 6, and 7, which offer a kind of summary for the entire book. So listen to God's word, inspired through the Apostle Paul. So then, just as you received Jesus as Lord, or Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that we would be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose roots are nourished, who would grow strong in faith. And we pray that we would bear fruit in season. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at this text and we'll be following its progression where Paul speaks about how we can be rooted in Christ as we receive Jesus as Lord, as we are strengthened in faith through a spirit of wisdom, and as we overflow with thankfulness. Now, the Apostle Paul here speaks about being deeply rooted in Christ. Hope Jaron is a science writer, and she pens these words. The most important thing for a tiny seed in the earth is to put roots down. And the most essential thing 
for that plant survival is also to put its roots down. She writes that if a root can anchor in the soil and go down 10, 20, 30, or 40 meters, and here are her words, if the root takes root, then the plant becomes all but indestructible. It will split bedrock, tear apart everything above ground, and most plants can still grow rebelliously back from just one intact root. Many of us have probably seen how roots can actually split sidewalks. Roots can be very powerful. And if you grow your roots deep into Jesus Christ, you can become resilient and become the kind of person who, if needed, in a manner of speaking, will split sidewalks. And so let's explore how this happens. In the text where Paul is speaking about being rooted in God, he says in verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Last Sunday, we began this new series in the book of Colossians, and I gave some of the backdrop. Let me review some of the context. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome where he is imprisoned because of his public proclamation that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And this letter is going to the followers of Jesus at the church at Colossae. Colossae is a small town where there are as many, quote, gods as there are people. And if something bad happens to the townspeople, if they experience, for example, a famine, an earthquake, or a flood, they immediately assume the reason they are going through this difficult time is because someone in their town has not made the proper sacrifices to the gods. In a small town like Colossae, there is no such thing as a private life. Everyone is in on everyone else's business. And so if you are a follower of Christ and you are not making the sacrifices to the gods or if you don't show up at the festival to honor Caesar and something goes wrong, everyone will know just who to blame. After the great fire of Rome, the emperor Nero blamed the Christians. He blamed them for the fire he apparently set himself. And he had them literally set on fire or thrown to the lions or crucified. And as you can imagine, there was great pressure on the followers of Jesus to bow down to the gods of their day to bow down to Caesar. And so this letter is meant to encourage them and us. Now, we today don't face direct pressure to bow down to gods like Zeus or Apollo or Caesar. But as we observed last Sunday, living in a capitalist consumer society, we do face pressure, whether we know it or not, to, in a manner of speaking, bow down and serve the gods of money and success. We feel pressure to define our lives by the money we pursue, the money we accumulate. 
to define our existence by what we purchase and consume, to measure our lives by our achievements and by our reputations, what people think of us. And there are forces outside of ourselves that would, in effect, serve as gods or idols in our life, potentially. But there are also would-be gods that reside within us. In my book, Survival Guide for the Soul, I said that sometimes we hear people use the phrase, be true to yourself. And when people use that expression, it's assuming that we human beings have a singular, cohesive, and unified self. But in fact, we have many selves. We have an ambitious self that likes to work hard and achieve. We have a more laid-back self that likes to perhaps lie down on a hammock and chill. We have a social self that loves to be with people. We have a private self that loves to be alone and experience solitude. We have a recreational self. We have a sexual self. We have a self-conscious self that tends to be concerned about what other people think of us, how we are viewed. And it's like we have this committee of selves in our heart that are all vying for their proposal. And sometimes, maybe we don't think about it quite this way, but we want to add Jesus as a committee member to the committee of our heart to give us perhaps ideas, proposals, But Jesus wants to come in not as a committee member, but as the Lord of the committee of our heart to have veto power. Let me use another image here. I've got a friend named John who also happens to be a pastor. And John says that when his first child was born, a daughter, She was so small and looked so fragile. And he put his baby girl into a baby car seat and then lifted the car seat and attached it to the back seat of the car. And as he got into the driver's seat and saw her head sort of of wobbling a little bit, he said, I was scared. And I drove out of the hospital parking lot carefully, eventually got on the freeway. And when I got onto the freeway, I pushed the button for my hazard lights to turn on and drove all the way home at about 50 kilometers an hour. That was like the most scary day with, with my daughter in the car. And then he asked the question, some of you are maybe getting a call from him right now. Uh, Can you guess what the second most scary day with my daughter and a car was? It was a day when she was 16 years old and she wanted the keys. And when I handed over the keys to my daughter and sat not in the driver's seat, but in the passenger seat, I realized that I would not be choosing the destination, nor the route, nor the speed And I was no longer in control. And he says, Jesus doesn't want to be in the ride-along seat in the vehicle of our lives. Yes, he is crying out to be in the driver's seat. Many of us prefer, maybe we don't think about it quite this way, but to have Jesus beside us, but in the passenger seat so he can give us good advice, maybe comfort if we're feeling down, maybe a, a boost emotionally or spiritually. 
But Jesus asks us to shift seats with him and to be in the driver's seat. And if Jesus is really our Lord, it means, among other things, that our wallet is no longer ours. We don't just give when we are feeling especially generous or more and more money is coming in. We give, as, as Craig mentioned, ideally with a cheerful heart, but we give under the direction of the Lord. If Jesus is Lord of our lives, it means that he is also Lord of our egos. We just can't let our ego run amok and pursue every self-centered ambition in our lives. As Paul will later say in Colossians, if Jesus is our Lord, he is also Lord of our mouths, which means we don't get to gossip, flatter, deceive, spew rage, exaggerate. As Paul also says in Colossians 3, if Jesus is our Lord, it means he is Lord of our sexuality, which means we do not act out every single sexual impulse that we may feel. And the paradox is when we invite Jesus to be our Lord, when we give him the keys to the vehicle of our lives, we actually experience more true freedom, more real flourishing, more genuine fulfillment. And so if you want to become like a tree that is deeply rooted, whose roots, if necessary, can break sidewalks, make Jesus Lord in a beautiful parallel passage in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, God says to us through his prophet, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. God is saying to us through Jeremiah's voice, if you want to be like a tree whose roots are planted by a nourishing stream, a tree that bears fruit in season, trust in the Lord, put your confidence in him, or to use more modern language, invite the Lord to be the one who has veto power on the committee of your heart. Invite him to take over the driver's seat of the vehicle of your life. And then the Apostle Paul would say, if you want to be deeply rooted in God and have a truly transformative relationship with your maker, then receive a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible isn't about having an exceptionally high IQ or getting great grades at school or having a lot of head knowledge about a particular subject matter. Wisdom is about having an understanding of what truly pleases God and then living in a way that's consistent with God's purpose for you. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, 9 and 10, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all what? Through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul is saying that true wisdom is about knowing how to live in a way that is 
worthy of the Lord so that you please him in every way and bear fruit in every good work. I don't know if you know the name Robert Coles. Robert Coles was an esteemed professor at Harvard. And he wrote an important essay called The Disparity Between Intellect and Character. This essay was inspired by one of his students. This particular student came from the Midwest from a, quote, working class background. And because of her financially challenged situation, she had to work her way through university by cleaning the dorm rooms of other students. And she explained to Professor Coles that again and again, people at her school did not treat her with simple courtesy and respect and would often treat her rudely and even crudely because of her relative lower economic position. She talked about how one student, as she cleaned the dorms, repeatedly sexually propositioned her. And he was a student that she was taking two philosophy classes with, and this particular student excelled, received the highest grades in assignments related to moral reasoning. This student ended up quitting her job and leaving Harvard. And in a kind of exit interview with Professor Coles, she said, you know, some of the, quote, best and brightest at Harvard have treated me so badly. And she also identified a, a long list of highly educated people who committed some of the worst atrocities in the 20th century. And she turned to Professor Coles and she said, you know, what is the point? What is the point of talking about what is true and good in our philosophy classes if we cannot become true and good people. And the Apostle Paul and Scripture tells us that true wisdom is more than simply having head knowledge about a subject matter, about being able to get good grades in a moral philosophy course. True wisdom is insight in how to live in a way pleasing to the Lord, in a way consistent with his good purposes in our life. And true wisdom comes from receiving God's spirit of wisdom, which not only fills us with a divine kind of knowledge, but also gives us the energy and the motivation to live in ways that are worthy of God. In another scripture... The prophet Ezekiel prophesies these words from God concerning the new, the new covenant, where God says to us through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. The spirit of wisdom gives us not only insight into God's ways, but moves our heart to honor God's ways. And Paul is saying, if you want to be a person deeply rooted in God, indestructible, then receive Jesus again and again, not as committee member, not as passenger, but as Lord, as veto committee member, 
as the driver of your life and receive his spirit of wisdom. Paul mentions wisdom five times in the book of Colossians. And then finally, Paul says, have a heart of thanksgiving. Be a person who overflows with thankfulness, he says in Colossians 2.7. Dallas Willard was a wise, he, he died some years ago, a teacher and writer on the spiritual life. And someone once asked him the question, for, he prefaced the question with a comment uh, by saying, isn't it true that if a person is dissatisfied in some way, unhappy, that temptation to sin becomes so much more alluring and attractive. And then he asked Dallas Willard this question. If a person is truly content in God, how often do they fall into major sin? Dallas's response, never, never. And so there's something about being thankful and truly content that can make us more rooted in God, less likely to have a catastrophic kind of fall. And thanksgiving, or to use Tom Wright's word, thanks living is something that we can learn through the Spirit. Kevin Klein is a person who was born with a shorter left arm than right arm, and his, his uh, left arm was also somewhat not functional at birth. And then when Kevin was in his early 40s, he got into a serious motorcycle accident that paralyzed his right arm. He ended up in hospital for six weeks and had multiple surgeries. And while hospitalized, he said he learned about three phases of prayer. The first phase of prayer being a prayer where we look to God to get things. The second phase of prayer being a prayer where we ask God to get us out of things. And the third phase of prayer being one where we offer thanksgiving. Kevin was hospitalized, as I mentioned, for six weeks, had multiple surgeries. But whenever he could, each day, he would ride the elevator in the hospital to the ground floor and take a walk. Well, one day, he's on the ground floor. He's with his wife. And they walk through the gift shop at the hospital and his wife notices some really great-looking apples and turns to her husband and says, Kevin, how about an apple? Now, Kevin had not been able to experience any taste for more than a month. So food had lost all appeal. He had lost a bunch of weight. And so he said, nah, I'll pass. But she said, oh, but the apples look so delicious. You couldn't taste them. So he said, no, I, I, don't, I really don't want an apple. But she kept pushing. He said, come on, why don't you just try one? It can't hurt. And so he finally agreed, and he picked up an apple with his somewhat functional left hand, raised it to his mouth, and this is what he said. I took a bite, and for some reason, that was the day flavor returned, and that powerful sweetness rushed from that apple into my mouth. It was incredible. I started to cry, cry for the first time in years. The tears flowed and the anesthesia and the antibiotics flushed through my tears, burned my eyes. And between the sweetness of the apple and that burning sensation from my tears, it felt so good just to be alive. 
And I found myself saying, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you make it a point, a practice to say thank you to God? A favorite actor of mine, Denzel Washington, spoke at a university commencement. And as he often does when he speaks publicly, he sounded much like a preacher rather than an actor. And here's what he said to the students who were graduating. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. I didn't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. While you're on your knees, say thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand that it's already yours. When you get it, reach back. Pull someone else up. Do you have a rhythm in your life to give thanks to God every day, every day? Are you organizing your life such that you are experiencing the maximum possible contentment and joy in God that will root you. Do you have a practice, you probably do since you're here, of worshiping God in community? Yesterday, I ran into someone not far from here as I was on my way home from the post office. Uh, this person introduced themselves to me, said, I'm part of 10th Church. We've never met. I'm thinking about coming back to the live services I've been watching online. Do you have a rhythm of daily thanks and a, ideally a weekly rhythm at least for worship in community. Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another through wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Paul is inviting us here, God is, to worship together in song, through psalms, through spirit songs, with gratitude in our hearts to God. The central calling of your life is not something you actually do, but the person you become. The greatest gift that you give to God and to other people is the person you become. And God is making you into a glorious new creation. As you continue to receive Christ Jesus as Lord, as you are rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray together. If you are willing to do so, if you want to do so, in the presence of God, you can pray something like, Jesus, I receive you as Lord. Take over the keys of my life. They're yours. It may be a little scary, but it will lead you on one grand adventure. So you can pray that in your spirit if you want. I receive you as Lord.
And you can follow that prayer if you'd like by praying, Jesus, give me your spirit of wisdom that I may grow strong in faith. Give me your spirit of wisdom. And then finally, you can pray if you'd like. Give me a heart of thanksgiving. George Herbert once prayed the poet, Lord, you have given me so much. Give me just one more thing, a grateful heart. If you'd like, pray that you would have a grateful heart. And may it be so for you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.